Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the fourth lecture in my Gresham College series on the psychology of finance. So what we've been doing in the series is to understand the mistakes that people make and how this leads them to having some decisions which might not be optimal for them. And what we did last time, um, last year actually, was we looked at the mistakes that investors make, how certain biases that investors have cause them to make bad trading decisions. They might think, well, why do I care whether investors make bad decisions? As long as I'm not the investor making those bad decisions, if Sarah makes bad decisions, then she loses. But whenever Sarah is trading, she's trading with David. And so if Sarah loses, but David wins, some people are happy, some people are unhappy, this doesn't have an effect on the overall economy. We think that might be a zero-sum game. So today what we're going to look at is mistakes that are made by CEOs. Because there, this does matter for the economy. So if the people who are in charge of the largest companies in the nation are making mistakes, then this has large implications for investment, productivity, or unemployment. So you might think, if CEOs are making mistakes, this is even more serious than investors. So this is why I'm taking the same topic as last time, but applying it to a very different setting. Now you might think, well, if people have risen to become the CEO, then surely they shouldn't be making mistakes, right? So aren't they the people who've proven themselves as being good at decision-making? But what it turns out is actually it might be mistakes lead to people becoming CEO, or the process of becoming a CEO makes people have even greater biases. And let me start with the main mistake I talked about last time, which was overconfidence, right? People have an overinflated sense of their own abilities. And you might remember that last time I asked you the question, are you above average in terms of your driving skill, your sense of humour, or your ability to get along with others? And in nearly every survey, 90% of people will claim to be above the median, when obviously only 50% of people can be above median. Now, that was a trait which was suffered by everybody in general, not just CEOs. But why might this be even more of a concern for CEOs? It's because they've made it to the top. They've been extremely successful. And in part, that success will be down to skill. But partly, it might be due to luck. So maybe they were a divisional vice president of a division that just happened to do well because that sector did really well. And so it wasn't just their ability, there was some luck to go with it. But remember last time we talked about the self-attribution bias, which is the tendency to attribute successes to your own skill, even if it was truly down to luck. So you've risen to CEO. Part of this is your skill, but part of it is due to luck. But if you think that nearly everything is due to your own abilities, then you might end up being overconfident, and that might distort your decision-making in the ways I'm going to be shortly describing. But what's another reason for why CEOs might be even more overconfident than the average man or woman? Well, when you are, say, a divisional manager, you will take risks. And some of those risks will just end up becoming really, really successful. And if you are somebody who's risen to becoming the CEO, you're probably more risk-taking than the average person. Like people who take more risk, they end up doing really well, and they can also end up doing really badly, because risk can either pay off or it can fail. But given we are looking at CEOs who ended up being successful, part of the reason why you ended up being successful must be because you took some risk in order to stand out from the rest of the crowd. So CEOs end up being more risk-tolerant and more risk-loving than the average person, and that's also why these are people who might be people who are overconfident. Now, you might think, well, aren't there ways of trying to address overconfidence? So let's go back to the idea of trading in the financial markets. If there was an investor who ended up being really overconfident and making bad decisions, then they would lose money and they would eventually exit the market because they've got no money left to invest. And even if that happened, doesn't happen immediately, maybe it takes a long time, if somebody's making some really bad trades, let's say Sarah, 
Well, David is on the other side of those trades, and so Sarah is not going to be having too large an effect on the stock market. But notice that doesn't necessarily happen with CEOs, because there is one person in charge of a company, and if she is overconfident, then it might be there's lots of other people who disagree with her, but they're not actually going to be able to influence the decisions. So what often comes with overconfidence is that you are not willing to listen to other viewpoints. So even if other people within the top management team are trying to offer different viewpoints, or even investors are providing other types of advice, it might be that you ignore them, or maybe they have incentives to provide advice that they know you will agree with because people are much more willing to hire advisors who tell them what they want to hear. So again, the cult of the CEO, the fact that he or she is in this position, might actually mean that other forces lead to them giving advice that the CEO wants to hear, whereas in financial markets, if you're trading in the wrong direction, other people will exploit you and take the other side from you rather than doing the same thing as you. So this is why it might be a big concern to have um, overconfidence in CEOs. There's not the natural mechanism to get rid of it. So all I've said is that there are some CEOs who are overconfident. But that's not that practical a question. You might think, well, how do we figure out which CEOs are overconfident? Why? Because if you're an investor, you might want to avoid their companies. Or if you're a board, maybe this is a time you would need to step in. Now, if you cast your minds back to my very first Gresham series um, two years ago, I taught a, a talk on executive pay. And I said back then that many CEOs are paid with stock options. So what is a stock option? This gives you the ability to buy the shares of your company at a fixed price. So it's good for alignment, right? Because if your company has done really, really well, the right to buy it at a price that was set some time ago is going to be worth something because the stock price has gone up since that price was set. Now, when CEOs are given options, they normally have an exercise period. So what that means is they, they cannot be exercised for, let's say, three years. Now, that's a good thing, right? Because it means that the CEO has to deliver good long-term performance before she can exercise the option. It prevents short-termism. Now, once this, the option can be exercised, it's good for a CEO to do that. Why? Executives are typically risk-averse, and it's good diversification to be able to exercise your options and to sort of diversify your portfolio. But if you're an overconfident CEO, you might choose never to exercise your options because you might think your stock price will keep going up and up and up and up because you're such a great CEO. So one measure which two finance professors, Ulrika Malmendier and Jeff Tate, developed was to look at who are the CEOs who don't exercise their options when they can. They continue to hold on to those options because they think they're such great CEOs and they could drive the stock price up even higher. Now, obviously, the first thing that Jeff and Ulrika need to do is to ask, well, were they actually right? Because it might well be that the CEOs were actually able to create value. And you might think, well, the mark of a good CEO is one who keeps invested in her company. She doesn't sell out as soon as she can. But what they found was that it was not the case. So if you are holding on to your options longer than you need to, in fact, that is not backed up by good subsequent performance. In fact, the company ends up not doing so well. Okay, so one measure they use is whether you hold on to your options longer than you need to. And the second measure they use is measures in the media. So journalists all the time, they will talk to management and they will look at management's behavior and they will have some assessment of his or her qualities. And so they took articles which describe the CEO as confident or alternatively some synonyms like confidence or optimistic or optimism. And they'll look at some articles which describe the CEO as cautious, or other words like reliable, or practical, or conservative, or frugal, or steady. And they'll have this media-based measure of overconfidence based on what journalists describe them as. 
And so here's one example. So this was describing the CEO of Blockbuster, the old video store, um, Wayne Huizenga. It says, Mr. Huizenga remains ebullient in his optimism, determined to make life miserable for the disbelievers who have invested short in Blockbuster stock. Right, so there were short sellers who were selling the stock, saying, well, actually, maybe you want to change your business model. Maybe you have to realize that videotapes might not be around. He said, no, I am confident in my ability. I'm not going to listen to those short sellers. I am going to try and crush them. And in fact, not only was he described in the Wall Street Journal as being overconfident, he was also a long option holder. He did not exercise his options when he could. So that is the measure of overconfidence that they use. They use those two measures from the media and your option holdings. So what are the scenarios in which overconfidence will manifest? If a CEO was overconfident, what decisions might she make? Well, the biggest decision she might make is to take over another company. Why? She's so confident about her ability that she thinks if she could buy another company, she'd be able to turn it around with her great ability and make it worth much more than it currently is. And indeed, Warren Buffett, the legendary investor, he talks about this by um, referring to a, a fairy tale. So he says, many CEOs apparently were overexposed in impressionable childhood years to the story in which the imprisoned handsome prince is released from a toad's body by a kiss from a beautiful princess. Consequently, they are certain that their managerial kiss will do wonders for the profitability of the company. So some CEOs do see themselves as this princess who can buy other companies, toads, which are underperforming, kiss the toads and turn them into princes. They can wave their magic wand. But in fact, that's not what Warren Buffett saw in his experience. We've observed many kisses, but very few miracles. Nevertheless, many managerial princesses remain serenely confident about the future potency of their kisses, even after their corporate backyards are knee-deep in unresponsive toes. Okay, so that's what Warren Buffett says. But as you'll hopefully have picked up as a theme of my lectures is we want to not look at what people say, even though it's sort of a nice story, but what does the evidence actually say? And so this is the first of the papers by Ulrika Malmendi and Jeff Tate, which have just spawned a massive literature, been really well cited. So they have their measure of overconfidence, right, based on options in the media. And they found that, well, the CEOs who are more overconfident were 65% more likely to buy another company. Now, going back to my very first lecture series, the sixth one of that series was on mergers and acquisitions, buying another company. I showed that sometimes it creates value, sometimes it destroys value, and it's pretty much 50-50 as to which it is. So the very act of just buying other companies, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what they found was that they were buying companies that were in other sectors, diversifying mergers. And if you remember back to that lecture, I showed the evidence was that if you are buying companies outside of your core business, that is typically destroying value. Why? Because even a great CEO who is truly great is probably good in her industry. But often people think, well, if I'm good at, let's say, the media industry, I could enter into a quite different industry, be it utilities or financial institutions, and uh, use my magic wand there. But in fact, even a great CEO is typically strong at his or her field, but an overconfident one won't recognize the limitations to their expertise and will buy companies in other industries. And so what they found was that on average, when an overconfident CEO buys another company, on average, the market value of that company will fall by 1%. Now, you might think, well, 1%, that's not that much. But in the S&P 500, the average company is worth about $20 billion. So 1% of that is $200 million lost. Whereas for non-overconfident CEOs, the average is pretty much zero. And therefore, this is consistent with what I said last time, on average, deals don't destroy value. 
but the ones done by overconfident CEOs do. So what else might overconfident CEOs do other than buying too many companies? Well, in terms of their investment, they might actually invest less organically if they have to finance it by selling shares. Right? So if a company has a great investment project and it doesn't have money for it, what should the CEO do? She should sell part of her company to some new shareholders and use their money to pursue that investment project. But if you're overconfident about your company, you're never going to sell shares to other people because you always think that the company is worth more than other people will be willing to pay. So if that is the case, then the investment that you are going to undertake is going to be highly sensitive to how much cash you have. Let me repeat this. If you were a CEO acting optimally, you would take any investment that is going to create value, irrespective of whether you have the money. If you don't have the money, you're going to borrow the money or you're going to sell part of your company in order to get the money. But if you're overconfident, right, you will only invest if you have the cash because you're really unwilling to raise money because your, your assessment of the value of the company is always higher than what other people will be willing to pay. And so what they also found was just investment was highly sensitive to cash flow, and that could be destroying a lot of value. Why? Because it could mean that there might be many investment opportunities that they should have undertaken, but they were unwilling to because they were unwilling to sell part of the company and allow other shareholders to hold part of it. Okay, so... What I've said is there is overconfidence, and this is how to measure it. This is how it might manifest. But you might think, well, what causes overconfidence to begin with? Right? Once a CEO is overconfident, we can see how to diagnose it, but what leads to overconfidence? So what's interesting is one of these things is, is actually awards. Right? So Business Week gives awards of the best and worst managers of the year. Time magazine has an award for the person of the year. Often these are not CEOs, but sometimes they can be. So Mark Zuckerberg one year was named as the Time person of the year. Now, it's not clear whether this is good or bad. You might think this should be good for the company, right? It raises its profile. It's something that makes a lot of people think, I want to work for this company. I want to work for the CEO and learn a lot from their great abilities. So it should be an unashamedly good thing if CEOs were always rational. But if this gets to the CEO's head and they become overconfident, then this is something which might actually be a, a um, curse rather than a blessing. And it's not only that which you can look at. You can also become overconfident if you end up doing things other than um, running your company. So uh, Lee Iacocca, who was the um, CEO of Chrysler, he was appearing in Miami Vice. That was improving his celebrity status. You have Bill Gates uh, appearing in, in Frasier. And all of these things, right, you might think will be good. It boosts your profile. Um, but if it is something where you think now you are greater than your investors or your board or your other colleagues, it could lead to bad decisions. Now, there is um, a, a new paper, a newer paper by Malmendi and Tate, which looked at well, what happens after CEOs win these awards or have these other types of recognitions? Now, what they, what they found was that after they won the award, then the companies ended up underperforming. Now, you need to think, is this correlation or is this causation? Why I'm claiming, well, maybe the award made them overconfident, and because they were overconfident, they're making all of these bad decisions. But it might be that the bad performance would have happened anyway because of mean reversion, right? Companies do really well. That's what led to the CEO winning the award. But you can never sustain great performance forever. So naturally, it might come down. Just like if you were to toss a coin many, many times, you will have streaks of maybe five heads. But after the five heads, you're probably going to get some tails later. That's just mean reversion. 
those of you who know football will know the curse of the manager of the month award. This is when a manager sort of does really well, he gets manager of the month, and then the next month, he doesn't do, do so well. And people say, well, the award cursed him to underperform. But that's not the case. Right? You can never have sort of nine great months in a season. It will be that after a good month, you will just revert to the mean and then have an average month afterwards. So the, the fact that, that companies underperform after, they do, after there's an award, that doesn't necessarily mean that the award causes underperformance. But if you look at actually the, the, the amount of this, this does seem to be quite large. So if you were to sell the stock of winners and buy the stock of, um, of predicted winners, this will earn 15 to 26% per year over the next three years. So why is that a really interesting way of diagnosing it? What they're doing is they're taking two sets of CEOs who performed equally well. Right, they both had great increases in market share, great stock price performance, but one got the award and the other did not. Right? Now, because both of them did really well, they should both mean revert to the same degree if indeed there was correlation but not causation. But the fact that the two that did equally well, but one just ended up winning the award for some reason, that one does much worse than the one who was predicted to win, but didn't actually win over the next three years. So that suggests that it is actually causation, not just correlation. The actual act of getting the award causes bad future performance, rather than just doing well in the past, leading to the bad future performance due to mean reversion. And what's interesting is the other things that happen to the CEO not, and the company, not just bad future performance, what they end up doing is managing earnings. So what does that mean? If you remember lecture two of this series called Hidden Investment Opportunities, there are ways in which companies can change their reported earnings in order to boost them. So they make the company look artificially good. And so why might this happen if you're seen to be a superstar? Once you've won these awards, you want to keep up the cult of being a great CEO. You don't want to admit that maybe things are wrong, and so you might manage your earnings in order to do this. And you can find a number of examples of this, not just managing earnings, but perhaps um, fraud in other ways. So Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, that was another example of a CEO who had this great cult, won lots of awards, was named a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, and was, not, was hiding some of the deeper problems within the company. But what else might an overconfident CEO do? Well, they get paid a lot. Why? Because they now have a, a large sort of status and halo affected with them. But even more serious for the company is they get distracted and do a lot of things that um, are actually not core to running the company. So they will join boards of other companies. Why? Because their fame just gives them the, um, the, the demand for them as being a director. And they end up writing a lot of books rather than managing the company. Now, again, if you write a book, that might not necessarily be bad for the company. If you wrote a book about the company, that might attract people to join the company. It might give the company great publicity. But in the end, a lot of CEOs just write the book not about the company, but about themselves. Right, so here's an example. Andrew Grove, the CEO of Intel, wrote a phenomenal bestseller called Swimming Across, this guy who's endorsing it, saying, haunting and inspirational, it should be required reading in schools. Why? Clearly, an account of Intel will not be that inspirational. Instead, in Swimming Across, a true American hero reveals his origins and what it takes to survive and triumph. So again, this is a concern because if the CEO is spending a lot of time doing this, rather than running his company, that might be why we saw this underperformance afterwards. And not only do they write books, the other thing that, that um, Ulrika and uh, Jeff found was they have lower golf handicaps. So maybe they think they're so good at running the company that they don't need to spend as much time on the company. They end up just doing a lot of other things. Okay. So 
Okay, that's all sort of fun, but it might seem also concerning if indeed the most revered CEOs end up taking some bad decisions. So now to the serious part, how do we address overconfidence? Right? And some of the listeners will be leaders of, all the organi- of organizations, and so this might be a concern for, for you. So how might we try to address this? Now, there's lots of things that um, CEOs do which might destroy value. And indeed, I, I covered this again two lecture series ago when I talked about corporate governance. But back then, I talked about decisions that CEOs make which knowingly destroy shareholder value. But sometimes CEOs will just expand the company too large. They know that it's not good, but they don't care because they just benefit from there being a larger company. Or CEOs pay themselves too much. They know they don't deserve it, but again, they don't care because they benefit. Now, that was what I called an agency problem, where a CEO deliberately takes decisions that are bad for the company. And why do they do it? Well, they benefit themselves. And so the solution to that is to tie pay more closely to performance or to have, say, firing or takeovers if performance is bad, to have an active board. But the problem with overconfidence rather than agency problems is the CEO genuinely thinks that she is doing a good job, right? So if you tie to pay even more to performance, she would even more do these things like acquisitions and buying companies on unrelated industries because she genuinely thinks this will create value. So this is why overconfidence might be even more of a problem than just a CEO sort of being lazy or shirking or pursuing self-interest. The latter, you can fix by making the CEO more accountable for performance, but you can't fix the former because the CEO genuinely thinks that her actions will improve the company's performance. So this is why it will be something else which you need to address this, in particular, a diversity of viewpoints and critical thinking. So this was the topic of a Gresham lecture I gave last year called Critical Thinking, in turn based on my TED talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World. So a couple of points from those talks. The first as a CEO is to seek other viewpoints. So you'll naturally be overconfident in your own ability, and you'll naturally have people who are wanting to say things that they know that you want to hear. It's a way of ingratiating themselves with the CEO. So one important thing is to create a culture that encourages dissent. So part of this might be to have a diverse hiring policy, so look at people from different backgrounds. This might involve gender, it might involve ethnicity, but many other facets of diversity. But it's not just to have diverse people within the organisation, it's to have a culture which unleashes it and encourages people to have different uh, ways of thinking. So one example is the Amazon golden silence. So what does that mean? So there are organizations in which you typically will have an agenda for a meeting and people will read the agenda and discuss the issues beforehand. And so if people have read the agenda and then a boss sort of says in the corridor, I think, well, we should say this on this particular item, that already will skew other people. So when it gets to the actual meeting, they already know what the bosses think and therefore they're not going to say their own viewpoint, even if it's different. So what the Amazon Golden Silence is, is that they actually don't send out the agenda before the meeting. Instead, they provide the agenda and the pre-reads in that meeting, and they have half an hour to read this in silence. And so then they will call on people for their opinions. And because they've not had the opportunity to discuss it with other people, then you are going to get the authentic views of people. And you'll typically ask the junior people in the organisation to speak first. Why? Because it means that they're not skewed by what a senior person has said. Also, it's to try to use the various stakeholders within an organisation. So not just your employees at all levels, but also outside investors. So again, going back to my series two years ago, I talked about shareholder activism. And sometimes shareholders who will try to engage with a company and suggest to them, maybe you should sell this non-core asset or maybe you should not expand into this foreign country. 
Often people view these outside investors as sharks who attack the firm. Right, the whole phrase shareholder activism seems to be something quite negative, and indeed there's many guides on dealing with shareholder activists which say this is how we defend against these activists. But all that language is wrong. Right, to defend against something means that you've already decided that it's an attack, it's an unwelcome, we don't want to listen to their views. But maybe if there is some outside advice that we're getting, maybe the first thing to ask is, are they actually right? right? Do they have a point? Maybe me as a CEO, right, I can't see the blind spots in my own strategy because it's one that I devised myself. Let's see whether there's actually some truth to this and try to take seriously this outside viewpoint. Okay, so this is one. Seek outside viewpoints, actively look for them, and then when they come in, don't immediately get on the defensive. The second one is to listen to experts. So as I mentioned in the critical thinking lecture, right, we need to think about carefully about who are experts. So at the moment, for mergers and acquisitions, CEOs will go to investment banks. And obviously, they have lots of expertise. But again, as I discussed in my M&A lecture two years ago, they also have some conflicts. Right? So investment banks, they only get paid for doing a deal, not by telling you to walk away from a deal because it's going to destroy value. So even if they are experts, they might have incentives to push through deals that are actually value-destroying. And so what are the other sources of expertise? As I mentioned um, in the critical thinking lecture, academic studies are a source of expertise. Why? Because what academics do when they will study mergers and acquisitions is they will try to find out which are the ones that are more successful. Focused deals do better. Diversifying deals tend to do not, not to. And they don't have skin in the game or bias trying to find that conclusion that is simply what the data shows. And because academic research has to be peer-reviewed, right, there's other people checking, is the methodology really robust? So before taking on a deal, just look at the general evidence. Are the types of deals that I'm doing, which might be a diversifying deal, it might be a stock finance deal, it might be a deal of a public target, well, those are things that lots of research has shown is actually negatively linked to value creation. The final thing is to stick to the knitting. So both in terms of the business, so don't diversify ex excessively, and also your own time, right? If you're the CEO, you're paid extremely handsomely to run the business, not necessarily to write books or appear on Miami Vice or play golf. And indeed, going back to Warren Buffett, the best CEOs love operating their companies and don't prefer um, going to business roundtable meetings or playing golf at Augusta National. Okay, so that's the first part of my talk. So that was on overconfidence. I know I spent a lot of time on that, but I think it's a really serious bias, particularly for CEOs as opposed to people in general. Now what I want to do is to look at some other traits that CEOs have, which we might to be careful of. Now, let me ask, what's the main difference that you notice between these two shareholder letters. So a shareholder letter is when the CEO writes to shareholders, inviting them to the annual general meeting. So here's one letter, which is by uh, D.F. McNeese, uh, the chairman of uh, Rowan Companies, inviting you to attend the shareholder meeting. The second is Frank Baldino of Cephalon, the chairman and CEO of this company. So between this letter and that letter. What do you notice? Well, you might think, well, that's an unfair question. I can't read everything. But in fact, I'm not telling you to read anything. I'm asking you to look at the size of the CEO's signature. So here, this rather modest CEO has a small signature, and this CEO has a very large signature. And so what some researchers used was that as a measure of CEO narcissism. So that is obviously related to overconfidence, but it's somewhat different because an overconfident CEO is overconfident because they performed well, it's contingent, whereas a narcissistic CEO just thinks that they're great even if it's not justified by anything. 
And you might think, well, that's sort of a crazy measure looking at the size of the signature. But in fact, well, the proof of this is, does this actually show up in the data? And what they found was that CEOs who are narcissistic, at least as defined by the size of their signatures, overinvested, buying other companies, and doing lots of R&D. Well, that R&D is sometimes a good thing, right? We want companies to innovate. But if they're overconfident in their ability to innovate, they might just be wasting a lot of money on pie-in-the-sky projects. And this is what turned out, was the company ended up generating less profitability and less cash flow. Just like the overconfident CEOs, they were paid a lot, and they engage in much more earnings management, so sort of manipulating their earnings. And importantly, all of these results continue to hold even after controlling for overconfidence. So what this suggested is narcissism and overconfidence were separate traits that you might want to identify in a CEO. And let's just give a couple of examples of not just the size of the signature, but also the performance. So this CEO, Bruce Chisen of Adobe, you might think, who is he? But yeah, he was the CEO of, of a very well-performing company in these six years, plus 24%. But you might not have heard of him, perhaps because he was maybe having a lower profile. What about an example of an overconfident CEO? So this is a name that I'm sure you'll know, Rupert Murdoch. Right? That's the size of his signature at News Corporation. But in fact, his perhaps narcissism was not justified by his performance because the stock price went down by 2% over the uh, years that he was in the hell. Okay. So it's not just these two examples, it was backed up by large-scale data. And what was really interesting is that this has led to lots of other research trying to find other measures that you can have of narcissism. Some people have used the prominence of the CEO's photo in the annual report. So the annual report typically has photos of all of the top management team but there are some CEOs who will have a much bigger photo than everybody else. Also, people have looked at the prominence in press releases, the number of times the CEO is mentioned in the press release compared to the number of words in the press release in general. So if the CEO is disproportionately mentioned in any press releases about her company, then it's somebody who might think they're larger than life, they're attributing a lot of the company's success to themselves. And finally, what they'll look at is the CEO's use of I and my versus we and our in interviews. Right, so the CEO will talk about themselves rather than the company, then that's a negative sign. And unfortunately, this is also a sign in some politicians, right? Some politicians will say, oh, I am launching this scheme to help people, when in fact it may well be the entire government that was um, doing this or, or the people who advised um, the, the person making the announcement. So this is a sign that also people were successfully able to use. Now, one other trait that I'm going to look at before I turn to something quite different is sensation-seeking. The fact that some people might want to seek thrills, might want to um, sort of try to pursue excitement. Now, I'm first going to look at this outside a CEO context. So I'm going to look at this in terms of investors. And there was um, some a clever paper which looked at sensation-seeking by finding people's speeding tickets. So they actually got data on the speeding tickets of ordinary people, household investors. And what they found was that household investors with more speeding tickets also traded too much, and the trades did badly. They underperformed after taking transactions costs into account. So what that suggests is that a sensation-seeking household investor who drives too fast is also one who trades too much on the stock market which is bad for the reasons discussed in my prior lecture. But what's another type of thing that you can do if you are sensation-seeking? is in terms of the car that you buy. So um, maybe somebody who is not sensation-seeking will buy a, a useful um, car, but somebody who is, who might buy a performance sports car. Now, who can buy this? Not household investors, but hedge fund managers. And indeed, this is what the study looked at, was for hedge fund managers, the ones who owned performance sports cars, how did they do? They end up taking on more risk, but that risk was not good risk. They didn't earn any higher return. So when you adjust for risk, 
their risk-adjusted return was lower. Now, when you apply sensation-seeking to CEOs, what a study looked at was they measured this by whether you held a private pilot's license, because obviously that's something which is risky. But in fact, when we apply sensation-seeking to CEOs, what these researchers found was the opposite result, that actually it might be good. And so the point here is that I want to highlight that not all of these biases or these traits that CEOs have, which make them different from sort of the average person, are necessarily bad. You might want to have some unusual traits because when they're a CEO having them, it might actually be positive. And so what this paper found was that CEOs with private pilot licenses run riskier firms, but risk could be good, it could be bad, it's not clear, so risk alone is not necessarily a bad thing. And they also did more mergers and acquisitions. But again, deals could be good, they could be bad, it depends on the type of deal. So on average, what they found was that having a sensation-seeking CEO was neutral for firm value. But if your company was a low-value company, was sort of in a dying industry, which didn't have great investment opportunities, then when they bought other companies, those purchases created a lot of value. So why does that make sense? Well, it may well be that if you are sort of really looking hard within your industry and within your company to invest more, and you can't, you might take on the risk of buying another company if you're sensation-seeking, and in that case, that actually added a lot of value. And also what they found was that CEOs with private pilot licenses were more innovative, so they produced more patents, higher quality patents, and more original patents, i.e. patents that were different from what the company was already doing. So why might you think that there's such a big difference between CEOs, where sensation-seeking is sometimes a good thing, and investors and hedge fund managers, where it's a bad thing? Well, if you're an investor, what matters is there's risk. And so a sensation-seeking person might take on too much risk. But there isn't really the concept of innovation. But innovation is different from risk. Innovation is trying new things. Whereas if you're an investor, well, there's one thing that you focus on, which is trading profitably and making money with your investment. Yes, it's true that if you're a fund manager, maybe you're going to launch some new funds, but there isn't the same idea of launching new products like there is for a CEO. So back one year ago, in my lecture called How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, I talked about how Vodafone launched M-Pesa, this mobile money service in Kenya. That was very innovative. It was completely different from its core strategy of mobile phone winning license auctions and so forth. And so for a CEO, what matters is not only risk, but innovation, developing new products, which there's no real analogy of for an investor. And that's why sensation-seeking, it does have this positive effect on innovation that you might not have in other contexts. So the final part of my talk is to think about, well, what are the actual mistakes that people might make? Yes, we've said they're making sort of bad M&A decisions. They might be investing too much and trading too much. But what is sort of going on in their head which might lead to some bad decisions so that we can sort of knock out not only who are the managers who are overconfident, but what are the decision-making mistakes that they might and there could be a ton of things I can go through, but let me just keep this focused and on one particular type of mistake, which is rules of thumb. Or some of you might know this as heuristics or bounded rationality, where you're using some sort of easy rule rather than analysing something from first principles. Now that seems a bit abstract, so let me make it concrete with a couple of examples. So, one rule of thumb that people use is what's known as a hurdle weight. So, what is a hurdle weight? This is a hurdle, it's a benchmark, that any new investment or any new project that a company wants to take needs to beat. For example, 
if my company has a hurdle rate of 15%, then any investment that I pursue needs to have a return above 15% for me to be willing to pursue it. Now, a basic principle of finance, and indeed my final Gresham Lecture Series next year, is going to be called the Principles of Finance, looking at the essentials and basics of finance. But one of these basic principles is that the return that a project requires should depend on its risk. It doesn't make sense to have a global, uniform, one-size-fits-all 15% hurdle rate. Instead, for a less risky project, maybe 10% is okay. For a very risky project, you might need 20%. Why? Higher risk requires you a higher, to make, have a higher return for you to be willing to undertake it. However, if you're a lazy manager, right, it may well be that you're just going to have a one-size-fits-all hurdle rate of 15%. Right? So this is something that every CEO might make the mistake of. It's nothing to do with overconfidence or sensation-seeking. So this is why I wanted to end this talk with these examples, because you might think, well, overconfidence and sensation-seeking and narcissism, those are pretty extreme traits. Maybe I don't suffer from them. But maybe you do make these mistakes of rules of thumb. Okay, so if you're using this one-size-fits-all hurdle of 15%, rather than tailoring it to 20% for something risky, or 10% for something less risky, then what are the consequences? Well, companies that do that, they end up taking too much risk. So if you're a conglomerate, which is in many different industries, let's say you might have a pharmaceuticals division, which is risky, and a chemicals division, which is less risky, but you're investing too much in the pharmaceuticals division, because this one-size-fits-all hurdle rate is too generous for the risky division. So they are taking too much risk. Not only are they investing too much in that division, when they buy companies, they're buying companies in too risky industries. Again, because this one-size-fits-all hurdle rate is not dependent upon the risk of the industry. And you might think, well, does it really matter? Yes. Technically, maybe we should allow the rate to differ according to risk, but is there really any loss for using this simple rule of thumb? And the answer is yes. So what the study found was that shareholder returns are nearly 1% lower when you're doing a deal if you're a company which has a single hurdle rate. And how much value is lost from that? Well, in the time period that they studied, they had 6,000 deals, the average acquirer size was $2 billion. So multiplying all these numbers together led to a value loss of $98 billion across the US economy by companies just having this simple rule of thumb, which violates one of the most basic principles of finance, which I'm going to be teaching in my final series. So one mistake people make is just having a one-size-fits-all hurdle rate. A second one is based on deal negotiation. So going back to mergers, right, we said that when people do these mergers, then they might be destroying value. But what might be the source of this? So when um, companies announce deals, they will often announce a premium to the current price. Right? So if there's a company which is trading at the moment, in order to buy the company, you might need to offer 30% higher than what it's currently worth to encourage people to sell the company. Now, there's many cases where, actually, the current stock price already incorporates the probability that it might be taken over. Why? Because there could be rumours that the company would be taken over. So when um, InBev bought Budweiser, the beer company, before the deal was announced, people thought that the deal would happen. And so what happened to Budweiser's stock price? It went up and up and up and up. And so you might think, well, if the stock price has already gone up, then the premium that you need to offer above the current stock price should be lower. right? Because part of the deal has been anticipated. If the run-up before the deal was announced was already pretty high, then the markup, the extra premium you need to offer, 
should be lower. Why? Because part of the price has already gone up already. But those of you who've worked in investment banking before will know that this is not typically how it works. People typically will offer a standard premium, which is independent of how much the stock price has run up. So I used to be in investment banking myself, and what we would do is we would look at how much of a premium is typically paid in this industry when taking over a company. It was known as precedent transactions analysis. And so if you're applying this rule of thumb, you're applying the same markup irrespective of how the stock price has gone up beforehand, then indeed you could be overpaying for targets. Why? Because you're ignoring the fact that actually you're paying a premium to a price which was overly inflated to begin with. And so a famous paper by Bill Schwert in 1996 showed exactly this was what was happening, right? The greater the stock price was going up beforehand had no effect at all on how much you actually paid for it above the current stock price. One other rule of thumb that people might use is the 52-week high. So people look at how the target company has done over the last 52 weeks, and they might think, well, in order to get investors to sell the company, we need to offer them a higher price than the highest price it was over the last 52 years. Again, this is just a behavioral thing. It's a shortcut because that's something that people might have in their mind as being sort of a fair price. So if you're offering just above that 52-week high, then that might be something to get shareholders to accept it. And indeed, this famous study here found that indeed there was a spike in prices at the 52-week high. So bidders, when they're thinking about how much to pay for the company, rather than doing an analysis based on first principles, they're just saying, well, let's take the highest price that the company has had over the past year and pay that. But that actually destroys value. So what was found is that when you do that, when you have these deals where you're buying the target and paying the highest price over the last 52 weeks, those deals are destroying value. And that's suggestive of managers not doing their homework, but simply just thinking of what the highest price was over the last 52 weeks as a simple way to value the company, rather than thinking, what is it truly worth? The final rule of thumb I'm going to have before opening up to questions is not when buying another company, but when borrowing money. And here, the rule of thumb I'm going to look at is anchoring. So paying too much attention to the past. So when a company chooses to borrow, how should the company decide well, how much it should pay? Well, it should be determined by the interest rates right now, maybe the interest rates that other companies within the same industry are paying for their debt. But this nice paper found that there was a large effect of what that company had paid in the past. So a company might be used to always paying 10% when borrowing. So even if interest rates have fallen, and now they should only pay 7%, they still have 10% in their mind as being a fair um, cost of debt. And so they might still be willing to pay 10% even if the world has changed. And so what they found was that the past cost of debt affects the current rate that they'll pay, even after controlling and taking into account current characteristics. And so this was particularly the case in the financial crisis. So what they found was that a third of firms who took out loans in 2005 to 2007, which was before the financial crisis, ended up paying the same rate in 2008 within the financial crisis, even though rates had gone down. Right? So because they should be uh, paying much less, right, they, were, they didn't take this into account. Why? Because they were still anchoring on the higher rates that they had been paying in the past. Okay, so that concludes everything I had today. So this was to link, look through the mistakes that CEOs make and what causes them to do this, overconfidence, sensation-seeking, narcissism, how to, address, how to identify this as investors, 
looking at whether they hold on to options longer than they should do, looking at the media mentions, how to address it if you're the CEO and, and the board, seeking other viewpoints, listening to experts, and focusing on what you're good at. And then finally, we looked at some simple mistakes that managers make. They follow rules of thumb and heuristics too much. So normally what I've done at the end is, in terms of the questions, there has been a colleague at Gresham who's come up stage at the end and read out the questions on Crowdcast. Because of COVID, there's nobody here today. So what other lectures have done is they've not had a Q&A session, so they've entered and uh, answered these things on the Crowdcast platform afterwards. Let me try to innovate, not because I'm a sensation seeker, but because hopefully this will add value. Let me try and see whether I can just do this myself by sort of reading them out on my um, technology. So. I'll try this, maybe it works if it doesn't, so let me just grab my iPad. Andrew Brunskill says, is there data on the importance of family members as shareholders? So if a CEO has to confront Aunt A or Uncle B to justify business decisions. There is um, actually research on family members, not in terms of aunts and uncles, but in terms of your children. So there's research which finds that if CEOs have daughters, they're more willing to be socially responsible uh, because perhaps because daughters are more concerned about social responsibility than sons might be. And why I think that's a really nice study is that whether a CEO has a daughter or a son, that's completely random. It has nothing to do with the company's performance. So they were able to show a causal effect of having a son or daughter on the actual decisions that the company was, was taking. Okay. Um, so... Is there a particular leadership or management style more likely to signal a propensity to engage in overly confident behaviours? Um, yes, I think so. So th these will be cases in which you'll take decisions without taking other people's um, views into account. So there are some CEOs. So if you were to read, say, The Big Short by Michael Lewis, it referred to the global head of proprietary credit at Morgan Stanley, where if there was somebody who disagreed with him, he would say, get the hell out of my office. And this person's division end up losing $9 billion. So to the extent to which they're not taking into account other viewpoints, then that is a concern. Now, obviously, at some point, there will be times where the CEO truly knows best because of their entrepreneurial vision. So it might be you'll take other viewpoints into account and rationally think, I've heard these opinions, but I have some sort of information that these other people don't have. But that's separate to not being willing to hear descending viewpoints um, to begin with. Okay. What about CEOs in non-profits? Are there proxies for their overconfidence or the problem, uh, does the problem not occur? That's Albert Schramm's question. Um, unfortunately, this is difficult to study because we don't have data on the performance of non-profits. So a lot of what I'm doing here is looking at the data for publicly traded companies. Why? Because we have a stock price, we have clear measures of performance, whereas with non-profits, it's sort of not comparable. For, for a cancer research charity, the objective might be different than, say, for an animal rights charity. However, what I can talk about is there are some CEOs of um, public companies who will try to run the company in a responsible way, somewhat like a non-profit. And clearly, this is something I care about a lot. I'm somebody who does believe in responsible business. But there are some CEOs who might pursue responsibility, not genuinely to serve wider society, but to position themselves as the saviour of capitalism. And often these CEOs will, following on my answer to um, Carey's question, will be rejecting investor oversight. So they won't want to take other viewpoints into account. So they might make decisions without consulting investors and without consulting a board. And there you might be concerned that if then the CEO is going to do some things like do a lot of reduction in your carbon footprint or give a lot of money to charity, sometimes those things are generally good. But if the CEO does this without consulting others, you might be concerned that they are doing this for their own benefit and their own public image, rather than because they're genuinely concerned about society. I think I have time for one final question um, before I um, have to wrap up. So um, let's see. So some of these questions are, I missed the start of the lecture. Well, this will always be available for replay afterwards. And also I have the transcript of this. So let's see. What else is there? Um, 
Uh, what is the role of PR agencies, investor relations professionals, in the way the CEO shows up in annual reports, um, media, and events? So I think um, here, I don't have any direct research that I can recall immediately. So when I say things, I try to say it based on um, research. But um, here, I don't, can't recall anything off the top of my head. But I will say there is a positive role for investor relations. So often people see these people as spin, when actually part of investor relations is to be transparent with your investors, which are an important shareholder base. So I think if a company is willing to invest in a lot in investor relations, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You talk about the way the CEO shows up um, at media and events, and I think part of it is for the CEO to be willing to confront his or her investors. So I, sh I said in a, a, previous, um, a, a previous lecture, the idea that some CEOs will hold their annual meeting in locations that no investor can come to because they just want to be away from investor oversight. But the CEOs who are willing to meet their investors, that's a positive sign. And that was in my lecture too, called Hidden Investment Opportunities. Just fine. I know that was my last one, but I've seen one by Owen Branley. Does the Peter Principle still apply? Um, so what the Peter Principle is, is one where you have people who are promoted to a position where they're incompetent. So why does that happen? Well, if you're good at your current job, then you'll be promoted. And only once you are underperforming in your current position, then you will not be promoted further. So this says that people will always be in positions where they are incompetent. And I like to answer these things with research. So I will here just refer to a research paper by Kelly Shu, um, S-H-U-E. Um, I've covered her research in past lectures. She's got a great paper on the Peter Principle, which I would encourage you to read. Thank you so much for everybody showing up um, to, to this lecture, even though it had to be online rather than in person. And thank you for bearing with me having to read out these questions, even though it meant that you had to put up with my voice for one hour rather than somebody else's. Really appreciate um, everybody's interest. And so uh, the fifth, fifth lecture will be uh, in a month, and this will be on how CEOs will exploit our own biases. So these are things like having gym memberships, which encourage people to sign up and end up not going to the gym or mobile phone contracts where they give you a little bit of a massive penalty if you exceed your limit, taking into account trying to exploit our overconfidence in trying to predict what our phone usage will be. So that will hopefully not just be an interesting lecture, but also a practical one of how we can try to avoid companies trying to exploit our own biases. So I hope to see you again uh, next time. I believe it's uh, late in April. Thank you so much again to everybody for your support of this lecture series, and not only my series, but the series of my uh, colleagues here at Gresham College. Thank you.